from time to time, it's important to point out uh, what might seem at first to be obvious points, uh, but we should never really take them as being all that obvious. If you're new to the scriptures, if you're new to studying the Bible, you might not be aware uh, that the chapter and verse breaks were not in the original text. I should maybe add that it was also not written in English. It was written in Koine Greek. And so the chapter and verse breaks were added much later by translators uh, to give us reference points so that it's easy to find particular passages, chapter breaks, verse breaks, um, helping us uh, as we study. But they were not part of the original document. Matthew, when he wrote his particular gospel, didn't add chapters, didn't have uh, verse designations. There was just a continuous flow in the way that he was writing. Now, one of the downsides to the chapter and verse breaks, and, and also the various headings that, that translators add in your Bible, um, is, that, is that it often sometimes breaks up the flow of what's happening unnecessarily. You know, a lot of pastors that teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, will kind of arbitrarily approach uh, on a Sunday morning one chapter. Uh, if you're a around these type of Bible teachers, you know, you'll go and, and they'll do a whole chapter in a sitting. And I understand some of the, the benefits to that. It keeps a good flow. You get through the books more quickly. But again, it contributes to this kind of uh, segmenting of what should be a, a very natural flow. Um, I, I don't necessarily adhere to that particular strategy if you've been around very long. Because again, it's, it's, it's an arbitrary thing. And from time to time, and we'll see this as an example this morning, is the flow at the end of one chapter sets the context for the next. And it's an important transition. So with that being said, let's get a bit of a running head start into chapter 10. Going back to chapter 9, verse 35. Again, Matthew kind of concluding a few chapters where he's presenting us uh, the miraculous power of Jesus, examples of, of the, the, the ministry of Jesus, the practical ministry, uh, not necessarily the teaching. Here at the end of this, this section, uh, Matthew, in a, in a bit of a conclusionary statement, he says, Then Jesus, verse 35, went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Man, to have been there. Incredible. But, Matthew adds, when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. So this prompted Jesus to say to his disciples, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So it's, it's this context established here at the end of chapter 9. The idea of Jesus looking out upon the multitudes, being moved with compassion, seeing them as weary, literally tired, worn out, scattered, without leadership. His heart's moved. But it's moved to act. And Jesus, obviously, is doing a lot of things. But there is a limitation to the incarnation. Jesus can only be in one place at one time on earth. And so he's looking out over the multitudes, and he sees this, this, this incredible need among the people. Again, describing the harvest as plentiful. But noting that the laborers are few. There's only so much that Jesus could do at a time. He would exhaust himself, ministering way into the night. But again, Jesus limited to being in one place at one time. 
And so he notes the laborers are few, the harvest is plentiful. He says, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into the harvest. Now, a little context provided by another passage indicates that at this point, Jesus actually uh, does exactly what he encourages. He prays. In fact, he spends the entire evening here praying because of this multitude of what we would call disciples. And the scriptures tell us that there were more than just 12 disciples, that there were uh, at a minimum 70, likely even more than that, that were following Jesus, kind of part of this, this, this entourage. Um, of the 70 plus, Jesus is going to single out 12 for a unique uh, application of going into the harvest as laborers. So, verse 1 of chapter 10, And when Jesus called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of disease. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these, and, and we'll pause right there. So, Jesus selects 12 First introduces, describes them as being disciples. A disciple is a follower, a student, a pupil. But then if you note, another word is used to describe this particular group of men. We have the, note, the notation of them being, in addition to disciples or students, they're also called for the first time, the 12 apostles. This word apostle, it's, it's a very interesting word. In fact, David Guzik, in his commentary on this passage, notes the uniqueness of the word itself. Uh, unlike a lot of the translation from the Greek into the English, this word apostle uh, has no translation. And in fact, it's apostolos or apostoli in the Greek, and it's just given its, its, its English derivative. It's just a, apostle. There's not an, an, a real effective translation for what the word indicates within the English. So the Greek word is just modernized and, and used in this application. The best translation would, would be something similar to an ambassador or a special envoy, a special representative. And again, within the context of Matthew writing, presenting Jesus as the king, the king, Jesus sends out his representatives, a, a unique special designation given to these 12 men. They begin as disciples, their followers, their students, their learners, and now they're given a unique designation of, of being representatives. It's unique, it's special. Now, in addition to sending them out, which we'll see in a moment, Matthew also tells us that Jesus, in addition to calling them, we're told that he gave them power. He gave them power. Now, this should not be confused, and really, the sermon that follows shouldn't be confused as being an, an early manifestation of what we might call the Great Commission. Uh, I'll point out when we get there a few of the, the differences between the two. Uh, most notably, this word power is interesting. It's interesting in its context to what we find in Acts chapter 1. If you recall, Jesus, before he ascended to heaven... He gave a great commission to his disciples to go into the nations with the gospel, to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. This unique thing that instead of, of the world having to come to a physical place, a temple, to encounter God, God would, would make the hearts of people his temple and dwell them and send them out into the world so that people could encounter Jesus through his uh, representatives. And to do this, while given this commission to go into the world, Jesus is like, but pump the brakes, go to Jerusalem, wait. You need to wait. 
for, specifically, power to come upon you from the Holy Spirit. Now, in Acts chapter 1, this particular power we find associated with the Great Commission. The word power is dunamis. It's, it's literally the, it's what we would translate into dynamite. It's an explosive power, a unique power. In contrast, however, in this instance, with this commission, the word power, it's a different word. It's not the same power that would come upon the normal believer through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is exousia. It's the word. It, it literally means authority. So in context, he's going to send it. He calls these men. He's going to send them out as his representatives, but he will give them authority over what? Well, we're told unclean spirits, demons, to cast them out. And he'll give them authority to heal all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases. Again, this is something that's unique to these 12 and this particular time for this particular ministry. If in Acts chapter 1 we find the Great Commission, you might call what we find in this passage the Apostles' Commission. Sometimes, and we'll get to it as you go through the sermon that Jesus, that Jesus gives, the, the, the teaching he gives these 12 men, uh, you'll find a lot of very familiar passages of Scripture, very uh, notable verses, things that will pop up to your attention. A lot of times, however, uh, they're taken out of context. Um, you got to remember as we work our way through that Jesus is giving this teaching to these 12 men for this particular calling. It is a specific commission to them, something different than the great commission that's given to us, a different power, a different authority, a different ministry. But these men were to go around representing Jesus as his ambassadors, ambassadors of the king. They have authority, and they can perform the supernatural. Again, we're told in verse 2, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Bartholomew might also be uh, Nathaniel for, for context of, of other lists that are provided for us in Mark, Luke, and Acts. Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Libius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So we're given a a unique list, 12 men in particular, selected by Jesus after an entire night of prayer to be his special envoy. Men called, commissioned, disciples first, apostles now. They're unique. They're special. Again, noting that there are uh, other examples of this list provided in the Scripture. All of them do begin with Peter. Peter seems to have a priority, uh, preeminence within the list. Uh, he was a leader, understandably. It's likely he was probably the oldest um, of the disciples. All the lists end with Judas Iscariot, who, it's always noted, betrayed Jesus. Interesting, Jesus spent all night, and he still chose Judas Iscariot, even knowing that he would betray him. Interesting. We've got Peter, his brother Andrew. Andrew, one of my favorite uh, my favorite apostles, we're never given a sermon of Andrew, um, except for every time we see Andrew in the scriptures, 
Again, never performing a miracle, never giving a great discourse, but every time you see him, he's bringing someone to Jesus. You know, a unique ministry. He didn't have to say, he just brought people to Jesus. So you had these brothers, Peter and Andrew, another set of brothers, James and John. James would be the first martyr of the church. He would also be the first pastor of the church of Jerusalem. Uh, a unique man, they would call, uh, they would uh, have a lot of admiration for him, John. His brother is the gospel writer. Uh, the man who wrote the gospel of John also wrote three other letters recorded in scripture. Also penned what we call the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, Peter, James, and John should also be noted of the 12, become a bit of an inner circle. Uh, those three get selected for uh, special things. Uh, they, they were the three that saw uh, Jairus' daughter rise from the dead. They were the three uh, called aside that witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus. These were the three uh, that Jesus pulled from the, the other nine uh, to go deeper into the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed uh, before his betrayal. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Philip, Nathaniel, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew. It, it's interesting to note Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew, this is our author. Of all of the 12 apostles, this is the only one of the 12 in which his occupation is listed. Interesting, right? Matthew notes, I was a tax collector. Still just kind of, I think, blown away that Jesus would choose him, a tax collector. Someone that the, the Jewish people viewed as a turncoat, a traitor. Someone that the people despised. He collected the taxes on behalf of the Roman Empire. Of all the occupations mentioned in the list, Matthew's like, Matthew, the tax collector. Jesus chose me. I love that. It's interesting to also note James, the son of Alphaeus, a different James. We're told he's the son of Alphaeus. The reason I point that out is in the Gospel of Mark, Levi, who we know to be Matthew, is also noted as the son of Alphaeus. Um, some scholars believe that this particular James may have very well have been the brother um, of Matthew, though not mentioned specifically. Lebius, who we know nothing about, surnamed Thaddeus. Simon the Canaanite, he's also mentioned, <coughs> in addition to being the Canaanite, he's mentioned uh, Simon the Zealot. Uh, the word zealot in, in a different passage is, can be translated as, as Simon the Daggerman. Um, in that particular day and age, the first century, again, keep in mind, the Jewish people are a conquered people. Uh, Rome has dominated the area. They're subjugated. They've been taxed. They are not a free, uh, free nation, a free people. But you had zealots, revolutionaries within that culture, uh, men that, that wanted to liberate, to free Israel uh, from the grasp of Rome. These men, zealots, revolutionaries, known as daggermen for the unique uh, technique. They would have these long knives, very skinny, and they were experts at going through a crowd and bumping up against a Roman soldier and inserting this very uh, thin blade up between uh, the armor pads, uh, bleeding out Roman soldiers before they even knew it hit them. I mean, again, kind of a, a brutal approach uh, to politics. Um, Simon the Daggerman. How cool, interesting that Jesus chooses such a man to be a representative. To send out Simon the Dagger Man. The providence of Jesus to put the Dagger Man in the same group with Matthew the traitor. You know, I, 
at night, I'm sure someone was always on lookout to make sure Simon didn't sneak up on Matthew. Again, an odd collection of people. And then again, we have Judas Iscariot, Jesus praying all night. Again, Jesus, the providence of the Lord, knowing what was to come, still chose Judas. This particular list, this group of men, a few general observations. This is not exactly the A-team. Like if you were putting together a group of, of representatives, and again, you're a religious leader, you're a rabbi, <clears throat> this is probably not the collection that, that you would have assembled, not the group that you would have chosen, these 12. <clears throat> First, you wouldn't have chosen a guy you knew was going to betray you anyway, but Jesus does. And Jesus also knows that in his biggest moment of need, they would all deny him and run, right? In fact, Jesus knew Peter. In spite of his bravado, boldness, while he would follow behind Jesus as he's taken from the Sanhedrin to Herod, etc., when pointed out, even by a little girl, Peter denies and denies and denies, chosen by Jesus knowing that he would fail miserably, that all of them would. Again, none of these men are what we would call religious thinkers within the educational system of that day. You would go to the local synagogue if you were a young boy, and you would be taught the scriptures. That was education in the day. In the process of that, you would learn how to read, you'd learn how to write by memorizing scripture. It's how you would associate letters and, and, and sounds and words, and, and, and that would be the educational prowess. It's, it's how you would learn. You'd go to the synagogue, and you would start memorizing scripture. Not, not every kid could cut it. Not every kid demonstrated the acumen, you know, had the, had the, the brights for, for book learning. And that was okay. Because at some point, if, if you just weren't hacking it, if you weren't making the grade, if you weren't uh, demonstrating, uh, you know, just a, a knack for this type of book learning, uh, the local ruler of the synagogue would come and say, son, no big deal. Uh, we're kicking you out. Uh, you need to go home and learn your father's trade. You know, you're not that smart, but go learn a trade so you can make a living. You can help your family. You can put food on the table. Again, nothing wrong with that. It's noble. And then if, if, you, if you did make the cut and you, and you showed an ability, uh, there were different stages where you'd start memorizing books of the Old Testament, chunks of Scripture. Again, if you didn't make the cut, couldn't do it, you'd be dismissed. Go learn your father's trade. No big deal. I mean, it was only the, the, the brightest of the bright that had deep education. And most of these would become a part of the, the religious establishment. They would become scribes. They would follow after various rabbis. Um, they, they, were, they were the brightest. Now, none of these men, we have any indication, you know, progressed very far into their formal education. Again, Peter and Andrew, James and John, we're first introduced to them. They're fishermen, which means what? At some point, the ruler of the synagogue came and said, hey, little Peter, you and your brother, uh, y'all should go learn how to fish. You know, it's a noble trade. Same with James and John. Go learn. You know, your father, Zebedee, he's a good man. Go and, and learn the business. Matthew, a tax collector, we've already addressed him. None of these men are, are, are the cream of the crop, so to speak. 
if you were Jesus establishing a movement, you would look for some smart guys, some educated men. You'd probably look for, for wealthy men. None of these men, according to what we know of Scripture or church history, possessed any type of notable wealth, weren't wealthy, nor were they powerful. All with maybe the exception of Judas Iscariot come from the region of Galilee, which means they weren't from Judea, the, the seat of power. These men were all blue-collar, doing what they can to make a living, to provide for their family, and yet Jesus chooses them. Again, if you're compiling a list, these are not the men that you maybe would have chosen, but Jesus does. And I, and I bring that up to say that, like, you might not be the smartest. You might not be the most religious. You might not know the scriptures inside and out. You might not be wealthy or powerful, well-connected. But that doesn't mean Jesus can't call you or doesn't want to. And then what I love as he calls these 12, knowing them. <laughs> and he sends them out for kind of a, a big job to represent him. And he gives them authority. He gives them power. And again, I love it. It's been said frequently, but deserves repeating, that whomever God calls, he also equips. That God will never call you to a task. He won't equip you to accomplish. Now, immediately, we all start thinking of like practical ministry applications. But let's bring it more personally. If, if you're a mom, you've been called to be a mom. And you have that group of kids because God ordained you to be mom to them. And you might look, and there might be times where you're like, I can't do this. <laughs> I've been called to it, but I can't. I feel so inadequate, unable Never forget that Jesus always equips the called. So the, the, the question is, is like, I can't do this on my authority, but I need the Lord's. I can't do this on my power and strength, but I need the Lord's. If the Lord has called me to such a task, he will also be faithful to equip me to fulfill that task. And fellas, being the priest of your home, the spiritual leader, the provider, the caretaker, it can also be a, a challenge sometimes where you feel very inadequate. And yet, God always equips those in whom he calls. Such a list, 12 men. We continue, these, verse 5, these 12, Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, now again, pause for just a moment, that this sermon that's recorded throughout the rest of the chapter, we're given a very particular context. Jesus has, has selected these 12. He's sending them out for a reason. Now he's going to provide them specific instruction. This is not the Great Commission. This is a specific commission relevant to these 12 at this time of Jesus' earthly ministry. He says, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And again, right there, you can look no further to see a radical difference between this and the Great Commission. In the Great Commission, Jesus commands his disciples to go out into the nations, to begin in Jerusalem, then go to Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And yet in this specific commission, Jesus with these 12 says, listen, 
I'm, I'm giving you authority. I'm sending you. You have a job. You're my representatives. But this is the audience. This is the target. I don't want you going into the cities of the Gentiles. I don't want you going into the cities of Samaria. I want you going to the lost people of Israel. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't have a specific heart for the Gentiles or the Samaritans. You get to the book of Acts, and you find Philip going to the Samaritans. You see a unique ministry, a calling, a commission, a sending of Philip. And then later on in Acts chapter 10, Peter will be sent to uh, the house of Cornelius, and you'll see the gospel extended out into the Gentiles. Jesus has a plan, <clears throat> but he has a method, a timeline for the way this plan would, would roll out. Jesus, we're told, Paul writes extensively about it in Romans, he came to the Jew first and then the Greek. He came to reveal himself as the king of Israel before revealing himself as the king of the world. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And so these 12 are sent specifically to the house of of Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then the context, again, of that, you know, goes back to chapter 9, where we're told Jesus had compassion because they were what? Like sheep without a shepherd. So they were lost. Verse 7, Jesus continues, and as you go, preach. And this is what you should say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, obviously, there was more to the message than those few simple words. It wasn't as though the apostles were to go to each town and upon their arrival say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. End stop. No, it's likely. And again, uh, one Bible teacher I listened to referenced back to the Sermon on the Mount as probably being an example of the continuation of the kingdom being at hand. Uh, some of the things that they were to articulate. So they were to go into the preach. Literally, the word preach is that they were to herald. Again, the idea that the, the, the kingdom is here, the king has arrived, they're out there trumpeting, heralding. Prepare yourselves. The king is here, the Messiah has arrived. And in addition to preaching, Jesus says, heal the sick and cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Again, the end of verse 8 is probably a very familiar passage, or at least line. Something that's repeated. Freely you have received, freely give. Something that probably gets repeated. Again, the idea of just a particular attitude of the minister. Now, there is an application specific to the apostles. But we do find a principle that transcends that, right? Freely the Lord has given to you. And what should manifest or reciprocate is an attitude towards others. It's a reciprocation. Again, the, the law demands action. The gospel of Jesus, it promotes a response. It's not out of necessity or, or of requirement. It's something that's natural, like one domino falling because one has hit it. It's effortless. It's, it's a natural manifestation. Again, if Jesus has given you so much and has blessed you in ways beyond your imagination, shouldn't as a response to that, to then freely give back, what did you do to earn what God has given you? If you're honest, nothing. You did nothing. In fact, you did everything you could to disqualify yourself from the free gifts of God. And yet he gives to us freely, with no strings attached, out of love, 
manifesting from his own heart towards us. How radical. That God's work in your life wasn't predicated upon anything to do with you. And the truth is, if you know yourself, that, that's awesome. Because there's very little amongst, uh, of yourself that's worthy of it. You're an idiot, so am I. And yet Jesus calls us and he chooses us and he gives to us freely. And in response, we're to freely give to others. And, and this is the, the manifestation of this specific commission is when you go to one of these towns, hey, you go and you minister. It's a no strings attached. I've ministered to you. I chose you. And you go and you minister to others. And you be a blessing to others. Free of attachment. Free of, of expectation. How, you know, we talk a lot about the unconditional nature of love. But, but, but please think about that idea for a moment. The idea of love being no strings attached. Like at best, at best, you know, we, we would like to think that, that the love we have for our spouse is such a thing. But is it? Is it really? That we, we try. That, that's, that's a good thing. But there's always some condition. Probably not often verbalized. Ladies, I don't care how long you've been married to your husband. I'm going to get in trouble for this. Just thank you, JB. I'm going to keep going. No matter how long you've been married to your husband, if you can convince your husband to shower and shave and clean up on a Friday after a long week at work, put on some cologne, put on some, some of his best, wear pants, to go out with you to some snooty restaurant to order some overpriced meal, he is doing it out of love, but deep down, there's a little expectation. He's being as honest as he can be. But I mean, you get the boy to that point, he's thinking, all right, this is going to be a good night. It's date night. Business time. There's always an expectation. Like, we, 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 let's be real. Let's be honest, ladies, sometimes you oblige with a little condition of the honeydew list in the morning. You know, I mean, I mean, we, we try our best to, to, to love and, and to be loved and to do all of these things unconditionally. But if we're honest, that is such a radically foreign thing. And yet God gives to us freely. It really is unconditional. He's asking nothing of you in return. He loves you because he loves you. And then he wants us to reciprocate that. And you can't do it apart from him. It's impossible. Jesus continues. He said, provide neither gold nor silver, nor copper in your money belts, nor bags for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for the worker is worthy of his food. Jesus tells these men to travel light. There's representatives. They're his ambassadors. He's saying, take nothing for the journey. Freely I've given, freely you're going to give. I'm going to take care of your needs. I'm going to provide for you. Supernaturally, I'm going to take care of you. 
Take no provision. Again, we, we, another line that's often taken out of its context, the, the last line, for a worker is worthy of his food. It is a truth. It's, it's applicable. You'll often hear this used within church ministry, you know, as the justification for, for why a church should pay a pastor. You know, a, a worker is, is worthy of his food that you should provide for the pastor because he's working on behalf of the church, and that should be some justification. Not specifically applicable. Now, there are other passages that validate that principle, but this one is a unique thing about the apostles and this particular ministry in which they're engaged in. A worker is worthy of his food. I should also add, and, and this, this hit me, you know, right here, Jesus, they're disciples, they're apostles, but now he refers to them as whom? As workers, as these men are going to go around as ambassadors. And what were they to do? They were to work. Practically serving people and ministering to people. They weren't, they weren't to arrive to town to be pampered or to be, uh, to, to be placed in some type of a position of notoriety that they were above the people. No, they were to get down into the nitty gritty as servants to work. We have too many pastors today that don't understand that they're workers, that they're to work. And in the process of that, to sweat and to be worthy of their food. Verse 11, now whatever city or town you enter, inquire who is in it. Inquire who in it is worthy and stay there till you go out. So again, Jesus is saying when you get to town, uh, find somebody that's noble and see if they'll put you up. Which was, again, something uh, particularly mentioned in the law. Uh, dealing with the traveler, the sojourner. You know, someone enters a town, they don't have a place to stay. Sometimes there were um, innkeepers or inns that people could stay in. Other times you just needed a place to crash. Find somebody noble and stay there. And then Jesus adds, and stay there till you leave. Meaning like, don't, you know, you get to a house, someone's noble, and they're like, come on in. And then in the, your ministry, you find out that, hey, there's another noble guy with like, he's got a swimming pool. I'm going to go shack up at his house now. No, 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 no. You find somebody, you stay there, you minister there. Find, inquire someone worthy. Stay there till you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. Provide this blessing. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now, that's heavy. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, go to a town. You're my ambassador. You've got a message. You're going to minister. You're a worker. Find somebody noble. Stay with them. And if they're noble and there's peace and they receive what you're saying, provide a blessing. If they reject you, leave. And shake off the dust as you exit town. Again, don't argue. Don't plead. Don't beg. Just depart. Now, this image of them shaking the sand, the dirt off their feet as they exit a town, again, kind of a, an, an odd uh, instruction from our vantage point. But culturally, uh, this was kind of a loaded statement. The religious leaders in the day, the Pharisees, the hoity-toity, they looked down on the Gentiles. They hated the Gentiles. They tried to avoid areas in which the Gentiles lived. Hence, they be defiled. To the point that if their journeys required them to go through a town, a Gentile community, upon leaving, 
They, were to, they, they would shake the dust off their feet as this, this symbol of like, I'm getting rid of the uncleanness. It was very rooted in prejudice. It was kind of a, a nasty demonstration. Definitely didn't reflect the heart of God towards the Gentiles. And yet Jesus is telling a group of 12 Jews who are acting as his representatives to Jews that when you go to a Jewish town, if they reject you, if they don't listen to you, if they resist you, when you leave the town, I want you to do what they do to the Gentiles. What a scene. I mean, what a message that would have been articulated. And then Jesus, he ups the ante by saying, for that town, it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now, this is a very difficult verse uh, to understand the full ramifications of, of, of not just what Jesus means, but the application of like when this comes true. Sodom and Gomorrah, if you recall back into the book of Genesis, <clears throat> were two towns, sister cities, twin cities, that were known for their immorality. In fact, God comes down and he's going to judge the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Before doing so, he jones in for a snack, so he swings by Abraham. They have a meal. He says, yeah, I'm going to go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Because his nephew Lot was living there. He says, what would it take, God, to spare the city? And there's a whole exchange that happens. And basically, the negotiation gets down to like, if there's 10 righteous people, you'll spare the city. Of course, there weren't 10 righteous people. And then the, the two angels get to Sodom and Gomorrah, and there's all kinds of perversion. You can read the story in Genesis. And what happens? God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone, completely demolishes the city. Interestingly, very recently, archaeological digs near the Dead Sea have uncovered what they believe to be the ancient cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, a great salt field, and they believe it was an, a meteor that, that blew up at a high altitude and just demolished the entire town. You can read about it. Archaeology is always an interesting, an interesting thing, but some evidence towards the region. Completely demolished. But Jesus is saying that for those, again, Jewish people, that reject what you're doing, they reject the messengers of the king, uh, it'll be worse for them than for Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, is this an application towards maybe future events, uh, dealing with the Battle of Armageddon? Maybe. Uh, could it have a more literal fulfillment there in 70 AD when indeed Rome came into the area, flattened everything, and it was a worse suffering? At least Sodom and Gomorrah was quick. What the Romans did to the Jewish people, the towns of Galilee, was of particularly note brutal. I really would like to go further. But I'm not. Such good stuff. Application for us. First, you can't be an, an apostle without being a disciple. A learner, a student, a follower. These 12 men are selected because they follow Jesus. Are you following Jesus? Because if you are, it's likely, while this is a unique thing, the Lord will call you and commission you for a job. Now, that might not mean like you're going to go start a church or you're called to go into the mission field, but maybe you're to be a mechanic for Jesus. Or you're to do finances for your church. Or you're to be 
a husband to your family like Jesus would be, or a wife. Whatever that calling is, if you're a follower of Jesus, there will be a calling. And that calling will be unique. It was unique to these men, but it will be unique to you. A calling to be a light in your world. To be an ambassador, a representative. Does the way you parent reflect Jesus? It should. I know that's heavy. That hits me too. Does the ethics you demonstrate at work reflect Jesus? Again, when people look at you, what conclusions of Jesus do they reach? Yeah, and that's the truth. That's what an ambassador does. When we, as the United States, send an ambassador to a foreign country, a foreign land, they don't go in their own authority. They go in the authority of the one who sent them, the president. And their job is not to share their own opinions or their own policy positions, but they're to articulate the position of the president the elected leader. They die to themselves. They reflect the positions, the policies, the personalities of the one who sent. And that's us. As an ambassador, as an apostle, as someone sent, as a special envoy, your job is to represent Jesus, to reflect Jesus, to speak for Jesus. And so since that's the assumption and that's what we tell the world, like, we are to actually tell the world, I want you to learn about Jesus by looking at my life. What? But that's what we're called to do. I mean, that's, that's the entire example. That's the whole entire idea of, of, of being a light bearer or being salt, is that we're telling the world, hey, there's this great book you can learn about Jesus, but you can also just look at me. Paul would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Can you say that to your children? Do your children learn about Jesus by watching you? Or your neighbors? Do your neighbors, yeah, even that neighbor. We all have one, right? That neighbor with the dogs. Does that neighbor see Jesus in you? When people encounter you, do they encounter Jesus? Now, I'm not saying that to, to hype some condemnation on you because we all fail at it. But again, in our failure, there's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ. So, so what's the manifestation? What's the application? That's, man, I need to die to myself every day. And every morning I need to pray, Lord, I can't do it. You haven't asked me to do it. You want to do it in me and then work it through me, and this is supposed to be a reciprocation. So I'm yours, so you do it. And when I fail, I'm going to come right back to you and say, you got to do it, and his grace is sufficient. That's what Paul would say. Paul would say, I'm insufficient, but his grace is sufficient. So, Father, Lord, we do come before you. Lord.